it's just so nice seeing the different sizes. I can tell like an older male and like some older females as well as some younger calves. I get really excited. I usually have my binoculars with me and I'm pulled over on the side of the road with all the tourists. It's tricky. I don't want to go get into the whole manifest destiny and genocide that occurred here, but I'll leave it at that. So they're just such an important species um, in, in many, many ways. You end up kind of getting to know some of the animals when you spend time with them. It reminds me of an older, simpler time. It's just great to see them in the wild, which you don't see very often. <laughs> to see them on the landscape anywhere is really special and really exciting. It just does my heart good to see things like this still really beautiful. Watching the calves play around and watching the males wallow. We're looking for bison, but we didn't expect to see so many so close together as a little family. It's a very rewarding, not monetarily wise, but very rewarding uh, job and experience to have working with the buffalo. The return of the buffalo nation to the Dakota people here. People are starting to realize that buffalo, you know, went alongside the humans that relied on them are the keystone managers of the North American ecosystem. Grand Canyon where hidden forces shape our ideas, beliefs, and experiences. Join us as we uncover the stories between the colorful walls and add your voice to what happens next in Grand Canyon. Welcome, this is Jesse, and you're listening to Behind the Scenery. Grand Canyon is not the first place most people think of when they think of bison. But if you drive past the Northrum entrance station, there's a decent chance you'll see them grazing, wallowing, or lounging in the meadows. There's somewhere between four and 600 bison on the Northrum, but they haven't always been here. The story of bison at Grand Canyon is complicated. It's tangled up with issues that reach far beyond the national park. Issues like overhunting, climate change, colonization, and figuring out how to decide what belongs. To start untangling the story, let's go back to the beginning. First, here's Megan Davenport from the Intertribal Buffalo Council to clear up a question I had. Is it bison or buffalo? Both terms, bison and buffalo, are absolutely correct. There's also hundreds of native languages that have words for buffalo as well. We try not to get too hung up in the, um, the you know, this one's correct and this one's not. Um, we think it's fully common, common and acceptable to use the term buffalo, but they are one and the same. Yeah. Um, so our modern bison in North America are descended from Pleistocene bison. I'm Sky Salganic, and I'm a biological science technician. I'm based on the North Rim, and I'm the field lead for all studies related to bison. I recruited Sky to help me understand the story of bison in North America and the bison on the North Rim specifically. Their horns were about seven feet wide. What? So, yeah, our modern bison are quite different, <laughs> um, but they are, uh, you know, one of the largest mammals in North America. They're coming back from the brink of extinction in the 1880s. There was um, about 325 individuals left in the wild, and uh, now there's about 500,000, so... Um, not getting back to the numbers they originally were. What would those have been like? 
I've read 30 million. 30 million. Yeah. Whoa. 30 million across North America. From 30 million to 325. Yeah. And that was mostly from hunting. Yeah, that was primarily from um, from hunting in uh, the 1860s and 1870s. After the bison had been hunted to near extinction, there were a lot of carcasses and a lot of bones left over across the plains. There are so many bones that you could fill two trains going from California to New York. But now they're on the up and up, and it is an amazing thing to see them in a national park or a ranch or wherever you have the chance. Our bison herd was established in 1906 by uh, Charles Buffalo Jones. In the 1860s and 70s, he was um, hunting bison and was one of the best hunters out there. He boasted um, being able to hunt up to 10 bison a day and skin them as well. Yeah, so um, it's kind of ironic, but uh, later on, he felt a lot of remorse about playing a major role in the near extinction of the bison when there was hardly more than 300 individuals left in the wild. Uh, he was out there uh, rounding up the last of the individuals, bringing them to ranches to breed and repopulate in 1905, he went to Theodore Roosevelt and got him to create the Grand Canyon National Game Preserve. And they brought in bison from a ranch in Texas and tried to reestablish bison through uh, reintroduction, but also interbreeding with cattle. He thought he could make a more robust cattle um, with tastier meat and the fur would still be valuable in the fur trade. And he imagined that this would be a very valuable animal. So he tried to cross uh, Galloway cows with uh, bison. He eventually went bankrupt, right? He did. The project was unsuccessful. It went bankrupt. Jimmy Owens became the new game warden of Grand Canyon National Preserve. He took charge of the bison. And uh, later on, Arizona Game and Fish bought the herd from him and they managed them down in the House Rock Valley. Uh, 1990s, they started moving up to the plateau, spending more and more time. They would return to House Rock Valley for the rut. They would go there during the hottest time. That's weird. Yeah, <laughs> it is weird. But then about 2009, they stopped returning to House Rock Valley at all mm -hmm. and primarily spent their time in Grand Canyon National Park uh, with so much hunting on the boundary. Um, it really, forces them into the national parkland. Right, there's a, a year-round hunt on the forest for bison. And so they they know where the boundary is now. <laughs> they sure do. Yeah, <laughs> you can see it from the GPS data. When the bison stopped leaving the park boundaries, scientists at Grand Canyon started to notice changes. To get a better understanding of what was changing and what Grand Canyon planned to do about it, I called Miranda Terwilliger. So I'm Miranda Terwilliger, and I'm a wildlife biologist here at Grand Canyon, and I'm also the bison reduction project leader. This bison herd is either at the extreme edge of the natural range or outside of the natural range of bison, and as such, it would have been a very small herd, and they would have not stayed in one spot. They would have moved and left the area for periods of time, which currently does not happen, and part of that is because of people being everywhere, and so they, they don't have the ability to move the way they did historically. And that's true of all bison herds. Every single unit that manages bison 
has a problem because they they have areas that the bison are not allowed to migrate out to, yeah. whether it's a city or a farm or a ranch or whatever. There are just a lot of places that the bison used to be that they can't go anymore. So because of this, their population was growing. They were in a fairly small area of the park and we started to notice resource damage. They were damaging springs, trampled, muddy, devoid of vegetation, meadows from tall grassland into well-cropped vegetation, kind of like a pasture. Archeological and cultural resource sites trampled and destroyed. A lot of things were happening that were of concern to resource managers here. And so we started talking to the Forest Service and the state of Arizona, Game and Fish, department about our concerns. All the agencies were in agreement that the herd was too high. The state had always managed the herd at about 100 animals while they were at House Rock. There are as many as 600 now. And so as part of that, the agencies agreed to do some management to reduce the herd because the herd is primarily on the north rim of Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon did uh, natural environmental planning compliance in the form of an environmental assessment for a five-year short-term reduction of getting the animal herd below 200 animals. Herd reduction. What does that mean? Each of the last two years, Grand Canyon has corralled bison and shipped them to a new home. Sky explains the process. When it's full, it'll just start, like, skirting out that blowhole. that? What about this one? Probably that one, too. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So we've been uh, baiting animals into a fixed corral for two years now. We started in 2019. That's the sound of a crew filling water tank. Pumping water and I pumped a full trough full while... We use water primarily, but we also use food and salt. And I couldn't figure out how to get out and I was like, uh, it's going to get it. I'm just going to stay here and keep watering. But it was like running against the fence. Just get it established as an area where there is food and there's water and there's all things nice. It's a great place to hang out. I'm gonna go yeah. leave you guys to figure this out because I don't want you to get hurt. And then I went, I like parked the truck on the- And then we will shut the gates for the actual corralling process. Once we've successfully captured, it really takes a village. Well, it's kind of cool. The herd wouldn't leave without Aww, the one cat. And like cute. all these females were on the other side of the fence. And they just needed to- Veterinarians, biologists from not just our park, but other NPS parks, collaborating agencies that bring in biologists, all of the North Rim staff help out, inter-law enforcement maintenance. It really takes a whole lot of people. Majority of the personnel at the corral are working up on the catwalks and there are these walkways raised about six to seven feet above the ground. From up there, you can move the bison around with long flags and rattles. This is important because they are herd animals and they'll try to stay together, but for processing, we really need one bison at a time. So we try to keep a quiet environment at the corral and use their natural behavior to separate them out. 
Processing includes running them through the corral and then a biological team is collecting blood and tail hairs for genetics. We're putting a metal ear tag in and a pit tag that's like a microchip. We're putting on collars to the larger individuals. They don't travel well, so we'll just collar them and re-release. Same thing with the smaller calves. Um, yeah, and then trucks will come in from Intertribal Buffalo Council and we'll load them up and they'll start their journey cross country to go to various tribes that are receiving them. I had a big bull once, I'll never forget this. He just started just trying to bite me. That's Danielle Bucky. She's the one collecting most of the samples Sky just mentioned. My name is Danielle Bucky and I am a uh, wildlife veterinarian and public health service officer for the National Park Service. And I served as the on-site attending veterinarian for the corral operations. Typically what we'll do um, is individually identifying each of the animals so that we can go back in a herd and figure out who is who. We always take care samples. That's the, where we get the genetic material to, to look at the genetics of these animals. We uh, collect blood samples so that we can test them for disease, exposure to other diseases, etc. And then we occasionally will also take nasal swabs too because some of the bacteria that are an important pathogen for bison can be transmitted in the respiratory tracts from animal to animal. And so that's another sample we often collect um, when we're handling these animals. And then um, we will look in the mouth and try and age the animal by looking at their teeth and then, you know, kind of look at their feet, look for lesions that can be indicative of some of these diseases of importance uh, when we're talking about transport and kind of get, get a get a look at the rest of the body of the animal really quickly. They don't understand why they're there. This is not a natural environment for them. And so I'm at the same time just absolutely thrilled and also really um, feeling like, wow, I need to minimize the amount of time that they're there because you can see how, how terrified they are. You know, some of them react differently. Some get angry, some get quiet. Some are, are, are relatively unstressed considering the circumstances. So I kind of read each animal and they modify the amount of exam that we're doing or, or the samples we're collecting based on how that animal is in the shoot. But it's, it's certainly a very humbling experience to be that close with them. So we're actually, you know, doing the little a bit of examining we can under a high stress handling environment in, in the shoots, you know, at least enough for us to understand if they're healthy enough for them to be shipped across state lines or not. In order to ship bison, the park has to test them for disease to make sure they won't carry pathogens to other populations. Through that testing process, bison managers have learned. Generally, these animals are, are pretty darn healthy. And, and this is what we see with cattle, too. You know, when you're out in open air, able to move around across the landscape and grazing on your natural diet. Animals are generally healthier than, say, if you're kept in confinement, um, if you're not able to actually graze living food, um, and you're not able to move around. One of the main pathogens that are of importance to producers are the respiratory pathogens and then parasites. And parasites are kind of a perfect example. If you live where you poop, you're at really high risk, right? Yeah. And when you can move, when you can graze and move around um, on the landscape, uh, you're going to have fewer parasites. We in the wildlife community are really trying to shift away from this disease focus to a health focus mm. because you recognize that your resilience and your healthiness determines your disease outcome. You know, a lot of people can be infected with a certain pathogen and do just fine if they're healthy. 
Um, and the same thing for animals. You know, if you've got a good diet, if you, you know, at a, the appropriate density, and this is in part why this operation is so important, um, you have the resources you need, you can fight off a lot of these pathogens. Once they exceed that carrying capacity, they start degrading the quality of the resources, um, which can then in turn degrade their health too. Genetic analysis was also conducted during the project. The results were surprising. A lot of folks assumed that there was a tremendous amount of cattle genetics in, in the herd. And we, we did find some cattle genetics, um, but it was at a much lower level than I think a lot of folks had thought. And the really interesting part is we found some really interesting bison genes that didn't seem to be present in other DOI conservation herds. And this is something, you know, really when you think about how few animals were left on the landscape, the, you know, overall North American bison population has had a pretty significant genetic bottleneck, which means that really any diversity of these alleles could be important given the the selection pressure that was that was placed on it uh, yeah. you know back when they were hunted almost to extinction so it's it highlights the conservation value of this herd beyond what i think folks had assumed was possible with a, with a herd that had been traditionally interbred with with cattle or at least attempted to be interbred with cattle you know, we don't know, for instance, that, say, maybe there's a, a gene present in the Grand Canyon herd that allows for them to withstand drought better. You know, we, we don't know that at this point in time. But what we do know is that, you know, maintaining as much genetic diversity as possible in general leads to a healthier population that's more resilient to any type of stressor, from disease to drought to um, heat, right? Uh, and, and with a warming climate, you know, it, it's really important for any species we're trying to conserve to maintain as much diversity as possible so that they have the best chance of adapting to the changes they, they will see. learning all this, the question I was left with was, how should we decide what belongs? This is something that these three have been thinking about a lot. Here's Miranda. So it's, it's tricky, honestly. Um, and there's a several reasons why we make this. One, I personally do not believe the science will ever be fully decided whether or not the North Rim of the Grand Canyon was in, within the native range. Uh, yes, there are lots of maps that supposedly depict what the historic range was. Map making wasn't all that big of a strong suit in the 1900s. Archaeology tells us something, but you know, it's really reliant on what could be preserved in the system. Whether we will ever have enough hard data to say yes or no is, I really think, uh, unlikely. I think there probably were bison, probably not very many. They may have only come in every now and then. They are pioneering animals. You know, the young males will wander miles and miles outside of their range. But again, I don't think, I don't think that is something that we can hang our hats on to make that decision. And I think early park management was, was trying to do that. There's, there are honestly politics that play into this. These bison are very important to the state of Arizona, and it is very important to them to keep them on. I don't think politically 
we would be able to get to a point where we say, we're just going to eradicate them. Um, a case in point, the state of Arizona has introduced 17 new bison to House Rock Valley. If we were to eradicate the ones on the Kaibab, they might just open the gates and let those ones up. And then when you throw climate change into these questions and the fact that species ranges are moving, I think that complicates the issue of when do you leave a species be? And what is native and what is range expansion and what is truly invasive non-nativity? And I think it's a question that the Park Service and all land managers are probably grappling with countrywide. If the habitat where, for example, the redwoods can no longer sustain redwoods, but they can live somewhere else, do we move them and have them live somewhere else or do we have them go extinct? That, you know, it's a, it's a big philosophical question. It's a very difficult question to answer. Um, and, and I think we are addressing that with several species within this park. Um, and, and there are no easy, straightforward answers. And a lot of different things play into it, whether it's the biology, the practicality, uh, the politics, all of those things um, have to feed into the, that final decision. Yeah, it's a difficult decision to make for resource managers that are trying to balance all of these different resources. And um, I think the park's motto um, to preserve and protect, it's tricky when we're in a changing world um, to preserve things as they were when the Park Service came into existence 100 years ago. It's preserving a snapshot in time, and sometimes that's not super realistic. When you think about why a national park, any national park was created, oftentimes their enabling legislation is to conserve a specific set of species and conditions that were present when the park was created. And with climate change, a lot of those specific species and conditions are no longer possible on the landscape. And what this means is that our public lands established for conservation purposes can no longer alone accomplish the conservation goals that we as a society um, hold dear. We're looking at a future where we have to really think very broadly beyond our borders for conservation. It doesn't matter if it was native to an area or not. We need to instead, I think, ask the question, does this species need conservation assistance and can this unit help out? You know, we really need to to change some of that really historic condition type mindset if we're going to continue to conserve these species with climate change. And I think the idea of, of preserving this tiny mosaic makes sense when there's ecosystem integrity everywhere, right? right? But that's just not the key. There isn't, in my mind, um, there isn't anything that's entirely natural anymore. You cannot go anywhere without seeing some aspect of human influence. And, and because of that, defining what's natural maybe isn't the right question um, if, you know, our goal is really to protect this planet. And, you know, I mean, as a scientist, you're trained to be impartial, you know, and, and just let the data speak for itself. But because we are also dependent upon this, this planet as human beings, we're never going to be impartial. We're always going to be biased. I, I, think, I think we need to do a lot more as a scientific community of um, n not necessarily, you know, I don't think advocate is the right word, but, but speaking up for 
conservation, speaking up for those resources and, and being willing to kind of um, manage in the face of uncertainty a little more than we have in the past. And there's a really interesting effort um, that the Climate Change Response Program of NPS has, has done a tremendous amount of work leading to define what is native. And under climate change, um, what can we expect from, uh, you know, our interpretation of our policies, interpretation of our legislation in terms of, you know, accomplishing the greatest good for conservation. And this is really going to require this broader landscape um, multi-scale initiative um, that goes far beyond our borders. And I think Grand Canyon bison kind of are emblematic of this, right? There's, there's debate about whether or not the historic range of bison includes this part of the country or not. But that's not really, I don't think, the right question to ask under climate change. I think the right question to ask is, is this suitable habitat and can it contribute to the conservation of the species while still adding to the broader naturalness and natural resource value of that ecosystem? And, and that's really, I think, the question we should be asking. And there's knowledge that I just don't think we're tapping into as much as we need to be um, to have the, the to meet the goals that we have, right? Indigenous knowledge, particularly with the species that um, you know is so important to Indigenous peoples, um, you know, we're we're really missing a huge opportunity to make a bigger impact um, if we're not relying on that knowledge more heavily in their management. like Sky, Danielle, and Miranda are thinking about whether or not buffalo belong at Grand Canyon because of the decisions that were made about who or what belongs more than 100 years ago. The industrial-scale bison hunting that nearly wiped out a species in the 1800s wasn't just about hides or sport. It was a tool for controlling indigenous people and for removing them from their homelands. I wanted to get a better understanding of this part of the story. I am Scott Anderson. I am the land manager for the Plantu Santee Sioux Tribe of Plantu, South Dakota. I'm also manager of Buffalo Herd and been a member of the Board of Directors for Intertribal Buffalo Council for roughly 15 years now. Historically, you know, the Buffalo was the economy. And we're the Dakota people, we would uh, subsist our diet with Buffalo, but we also, you know, on the edge of the woodlands, where there was deer and fishing going on, but as we migrated west, like the buffalo, you know, they became a very important part of our economy, and to have that restored in the last 30 years to the, the people here, it's been a blessing. My predecessor, uh, Wes Hansen, he was a, a part of ITBC when it first started, I believe. And we started with some animals from the Badlands National Park and it's taken off from there. Here's Megan to give us a little more info on the Intertribal Buffalo Council. We'll hear from her again in a minute. 
My name is Megan Davenport, and I'm the wildlife biologist for the Intertribal Buffalo Council. ITBC is a federally chartered tribal organization. Um, we have a membership of 69 tribal nations that are restoring buffalo herds to their lands. So one of the things that ITBC does is provide um, assistance, technical assistance to tribes in managing their buffalo herds or starting new buffalo herds or growing their herds. Um, and everything kind of under the sun. So our organization has a couple different main programs. Um, one of those is a grant program called the Herd Development Grant. We also have a surplus buffalo program. Since 1992, we've been working with public lands, um, so places like the National Park Service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Refuges, and then a number of other state, federal, and also private entities in order to transfer surplus buffalo um, from those places to tribes that want to grow or develop their herds. And so it's sort of a win-win situation for both the parks and also um, for tribes because, um, you know, basically any buffalo that are behind fences eventually will grow and exceed the capacity of those lands. I mean, it's a species that used to roam the entire continent um, in very, very large numbers. So in order to kind of offset that grazing pressure and help um, maintain a healthy ecosystem on those public lands, ITBC has been basically arranging the logistics and also transporting, um, paying for the transport of those animals and helping match up those animals with tribes that want to grow their herds. Well, it's very important to diversify our herd DNA. We received 32 buffalo from three different national parks in the last year, 14 buffalo from Wind Cave National Park, two bulls that originate from Yellowstone, and then 16 buffalo delivered from Grand Canyon. It's fun, fun to watch. Initially, the Grand Canyon buffalo were kind of off on their own, and, and now today we we pulled out into this patch and they just surrounded and they were actually bouncing the truck around and that, the, the Grand Canyon herd is just immersed with the rest of our herd and adapted well. We have a lot of our members that are considered uh, themselves to be traditional Indians and, and don't practice Christianity but our traditional religion um, may it be sun dancing or other types of ceremonies, and, and myself have done that since um, first, since 1975, and uh, Buffalo play a role during the Sundance. Uh, it's spiritual, it's been a spiritual journey, and as well as um, cultural and economic, the return of the Buffalo Nation to the Dakota people here. There's 560 federally recognized tribes in the United States, you know, plus all the reserves in Canada. I would like to see more tribes become members of Intertribal Buffalo Council and expand these uh, numbers to other tribes. Alaska, Turtle Island, you know, and start helping the, the tribes diversify their economy. You know? Yeah, I agree with Scott entirely. I mean, there's such a um, room for growth in ITBC's membership. And, um, 
you know, what that actually means is, you know, many, many thousands and thousands of buffalo returning to tribal land and also returning to tribal people. You know, tribal people have always been the leaders in restoring buffalo um, and have been managers of the buffalo for tens of thousands of years. Um, a lot of times when people think of, you know, oh, buffalo doesn't have any predators or, you know, that's just ridiculous. It's always been humans um, and some other large, you know, grizzlies and wolves and things like that. But, you know, recognizing that many different nations within the U.S. Um, have been leading this movement of restoring buffalo, which, you know, now today has some, get, is getting some well-deserved recognition as a really important movement. Um, people are starting to realize that buffalo, you know, alongside the humans that relied on them are the keystone managers of the North American ecosystem and are so very important in restoring grasslands and maintaining habitat for other species and, you know, all these other ecological roles. So, you know, the more tribes are able to manage buffalo in the way that they um, decide to do so as sovereign nations and are also recognized outside of that for their expertise in managing buffalo and restoring buffalo, and restoring and managing, you know, all ecosystems across Turtle Island, then, you know, that's something that's positive for everyone. And that's something that, you know, everyone can learn from. I think what has struck me most in learning about the North Rim buffalo herd is just how connected it is to the world outside the boundaries of Grand Canyon, even though it rarely leaves them anymore. It's exciting to hear from wildlife managers who are adapting the way they think about buffalo and other species in response to climate change. But the question that still looms for me is how or if agencies like the National Park Service will include indigenous knowledge in the decisions about what belongs and how to manage changing ecosystems. Here's Megan with the last word. There's like a, a, a type of kind of Western science, like European Western science that, you know, has this myth that you know, all of North America was a wilderness before Europeans came here. And that's, you know, that's just garbage. The depth and diversity of how people have been managing sustainably for tens of thousands of years, the North American um, ecosystems is really incredible. And not, you know, not as many people spend enough time or education system doesn't necessarily teach those kinds of things either. So, you know, if you if you learn about how tribes are managing buffalo, like you get to see and learn about a lot of that. And if you aren't a member of a tribe. We are all neighbors to, um, you know, 570 plus federally recognized um, tribes. And if you're listening and you want to know more about buffalo, you know, look around you, find one of the tribes that's local to your area and maybe try to learn from them a little bit about buffalo and about whether they have a current or historic relationship with the animal or with any of the species that are um, local to your area. Thanks to Scott Anderson and Dave Ross of the Flanders Anti Sioux Tribe, to Megan Davenport of the Intertribal Buffalo Council, and to Danielle Bucky, Sky Sokanik, Miranda Twilliger, and Melissa Panter of the National Park Service for lending their voices to this episode. We also heard from visitors Adam Allred, Margie Ness, 
Samara Rangel, and William Simple. Behind the Scenery is brought to you by the interpretation team at Grand Canyon National Park. We gratefully acknowledge the Native peoples on whose ancestral homelands we gather, as well as the diverse and vibrant Native communities who make their home here today.